aphasia creates a context where our whole sense of self is challenged, the model of who we are, and puts a risk also all our relationships in many ways. Problems in families generally, and I'm not talking about brain injury, are often related to transitions in, in life cycles. If they can adjust to those changes, then they, they kind of readjust and they carry on. But sometimes at those transition points, they can't make those adjustments for one reason or another. And it's very much more so when the unexpected happens. We believe that, certainly here, that in this part of the world, that we are individuals and we have to prove that we can do this, this and this. We have to pass exams, we have to have friends, we have to have social media, you know, whatever it is. And we begin to value ourselves based on these external contextual factors. As a family therapist, I'd say, well, these are external things that dictate how we see ourselves, but we have choices within that. Hello and welcome to On A Good Day with me, Elizabeth Callahan, And me, Julia Ajayi. This is a podcast looking at brain injury and its impact on all involved. Thank you so much for listening. We appreciate each and every one of you. A small favour before we get started, please do subscribe to the podcast to make sure you don't miss an episode. And if you could like and review it, that would be amazing to help make it more visible for those who need it. And do share it with your friends and family. On today's show, we're talking to Susie Hayden, a neuro-speech and language therapist with 20 years experience of working in the NHS. Specialising in aphasia, Susie saw there was a need to work with the whole family system to get better outcomes for patients. Retraining as a family therapist, She set up her own practice, combining her skills to help people who have speech and language difficulties, allowing her to take a holistic approach to therapy. Welcome, Susie. First of all, can you start by telling us a bit about what prompted you to leave the NHS, start out on your own and make that move to do things differently? I think over the years within the NHS, I worked very hard to keep abreast of research and, you know, um, make sure that what I was doing was very evidence based, you know, trying to fit into what the NHS requires you to do in terms of outcomes and that kind of thing to show that you're doing what you're doing. And sometimes in communication, which can be very subtle changes, it's very hard to demonstrate change objectively. It doesn't really fit into that way so um i i kind of i began to notice over time that actually we weren't talking necessarily about measurable things i was working in the community at this for for the most part because i was much more interested in how people live life with communication difficulties and how they adapt and um overcome some of the challenges how they move forward in their in their lives which are, are changed in so many ways And I realised a time when I was feeling particularly unhelpful, unable to help the people I was seeing and really not knowing, feeling that I wasn't sure that what I was doing was benefiting people. Um, And I also had the pressure of waiting lists and so on. And um, a woman came in with her husband and he was in a wheelchair and had severe aphasia. And she was very, very angry, very angry. And she came in swearing blindly, really loudly, so much so that everybody was sort of saying, oh, you know, 
Susie, I better sh- you better shut the door and <laughs> they, you know. So um, and I had at the time I had a sick baby who was um, keeping me awake all night, every night. And I was feeling a bit hopeless, actually. And I she came in and I and I just sat down and listen and just kept quiet and listened. And I listened for about an hour and initially feeling, oh, just shut up. Don't come in here swearing at me, you know, very unprofessional thoughts. I just got really drawn in to what she was telling me and listening. And I realized that this is there is a whole sort of humanist, humanistic kind of experiential aspect to our work that we're just not not in tune with, not listening for. So I really felt that it was very important to think about, to, to acknowledge someone's anger, someone's distress, and really feeling that they have a reason to be. I had a reason to be very distraught about my child, and therefore you know, they would have reason to feel very distraught about what was going on for them. And I think those things that we share as human beings are the things that join us together, link us together. So I don't know what it's like to be, so this with this with this particular woman, I didn't know what to do to help, but I could listen. I knew, what, I know what it's like to be distressed and I know what it's like to be angry. And I just said, I think that's awful what's happened to you. And I'm so sorry. And I didn't try to fix it because I felt I couldn't. And she just, she just calmed down. And then she was able to sort of sit and make a plan about what she was going to do. But that was no help from me. And I, I kind of, I kind of realized in a way that people don't always need your expertise. Um, And often trying to show our expertise is about trying to prove ourselves rather than actually meet in the middle with the person we're meeting with. So I began to do some training in family therapy, but I'm still very passionate about aphasia. Aphasia is my primary interest, I would say, but I don't think having done training in family therapy that you can divorce it. You you can divorce the two because aphasia critically affects family relationships, but family relationships critically affect aphasia as well. There's a sort of circular interactive effect so getting to understand these dynamics and what's happening from the perspective of the family who are experts on the person who's has the aphasia and from the person with aphasia who is the expert on their aphasia and what goes on for them in that in those struggles and and so on so I see it as putting expertise aside but it's there in the background in case I can use it helpfully and saying, well, what are we? What can we bring together? You, me, your partner, or your child, or your parent, and what sense can we make of what's happened to you? Given your culture, your upbringing, your gender, your religion, um, your socio-economic status, what sense does this mean to you? You know, I think everyone makes different senses. Of, of crises, things that happen unexpectedly. Because we, we we kind of think that our lives are going to follow a kind of tra- tra- trajectory, bringing up, having children, bringing up children, they'll go to school, they'll go to uni or they'll go get a job and so on. And when something comes completely out of the blue and sideblinds all of that, the whole family system is 
thrown up in the air. Um, Susie, can I ask you a question? It's absolutely wonderful to have you with us. Thank you so much for joining us um, on at on a good day. And I'm very interested to hear you talk about the way that you see the whole family system and someone's personal experience working in a in a context mm. um, that they aren't just the sum of their impairments. That that actually it's all the factors around mm. that person, and that's very much in line with the social model of disability, yes. um, which I know you'll be able to talk and. We've mm -hmm. spoken about that before, um, but I'd like to just unpick one thing that you said that I was very interested in when you were talking about how aphasia affects the family and the family affects the the aphasia of the, the person, mm -hmm. in our cases, with brain injury. Can mm -hmm. you just tell me a little bit about how you see the family affecting the aphasia? Because the first bit, I guess I... I yeah. feel intuitively I understand more, but how would you say that the family affects aphasia? There are there are lots of different ways, but what I think when you ask that question, what comes to mind is a uh, some in-depth interviews I did as part of a research study into the process of adjustment to aphasia in one particular family, but it was very very detailed, you know, and. Um, this the, this was um, actually a man who'd, who'd had a stroke and whose whole career was built around la language and the use of words. I didn't have much hope for his aphasia recovery. He did because he was in complete, absolute denial that he was ever going to not be able to get back to work. And I was like, no, there's no way, but we'll go along. You know, we'll see. And no, in fact, I think I told him I, one thing's for sure. You won't get back to work because I do tend to kind of be quite straight with what my perspective is. He did make a really good recovery in lots of ways. He still had aphasia and he eventually had to stop working, but he was still writing. And his wife, when I interviewed her, she said to me, she said, had I not been his wife, I would have seen it as recovery too. And the aphasia for him was such a source of I think it was for, for him it may, may have been a source of shame because his his in society you know we identify ourselves by our roles in society our jobs particularly dare I say for men of that of that older generation certainly and he, he felt quite a lot of shame and therefore he refused to discuss it with his wife and I didn't realize this until because he wouldn't he wouldn't come to sessions with her. He he kept her separate. And when I chose them amongst others for my interviews, she she said that he just wouldn't discuss it with her. He 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 kept it so private that it really affected their relationship. She was on eggshells all the time. She she said, "I never know when to speak for him. I never know when to." say things for him when we go out with friends or we meet new people I want to say oh he's had a stroke or you know and she she said why don't you tell people what's happened because actually if you don't tell people they're going to think you've lost your marbles and you haven't <laughs> you have mm. um, but that sense of shame was so so strong and what she and the, the uh, an adult daughter both said to me is 
if I had any advice for anyone else, I would say the two of you, meaning the mother and the wife and, and daughter, go for some outs, outside therapy quite early on. The adult daughter said, I would really try to talk to someone, try and look after yourself, because it's all very well feeling awful for your loved person, but your life has completely changed as well. Yeah. And so I think that that's very um, resonant with um, the the things that we talk about on the podcast. And of course, the person and our loved ones with brain injury are the people that have have um, had the, the most significant impact of this on. But of course, it is a huge effect on the family, partners, wider friends and, and people around that person as well. So I those think that is massively, massively underestimated. And in some ways, interviewing somebody with who had this quite severe aphasia, he even even four years on had no idea that his wife and daughter and extended family were distressed by the whole event or even really noticed it. So the experience for him in many ways was less distressing than it was for for the family because of the way he dealt with it and and there's this real juxtaposition of frustration and you know distress on the part of a partner sometimes because this will if, if only if only he would talk about it but in a in a way his determination that it wasn't going to affect him meant that he made good progress however it didn't it, it actually left their relationships really quite damaged and yeah. we do know that relationships really struggle often yeah. after a brain injury and many people struggle to stay together mm. as well mm. after that so mm. how do your experiences as a family therapist um, you know, help in, in families that you might right. see affected by brain injury? Yeah. So um, I, th I think it's fair to say that all relationships are negotiated and renegotiated over time. Are they not? I mean, our relationships with our children are renegotiated as they enter, you know, as they come out of being a toddler and then they enter adolescence and so on. We are constantly renegotiating who we are to them and who they are to us, you know, as we want to give them more autonomy and that kind of thing. Family therapists see difficulties, sort of relational difficulties, as problems in the interactions and communication in the spaces between people, rather than residing in the fault of the individual. Okay, so they sort of talk about aphasia, I talk about aphasia as being in the family not residing in one person, which can make that person feel that they have ruined the family or they are the cause of the problems in the family, for example. Um, problems in families generally, and I'm not talking about brain injury, are often related to transitions in, in life cycles. So that, you know, like when, when a new baby's born or when a grandparent dies or, you know, when you enter adolescence, when a child leaves home. And it's families are like a system. If they can adjust to those changes, then they they kind of readjust and they carry on. But sometimes at those transition points, they can't make those adjustments for one reason or another. 
And it's very much more so when the unexpected happens, when you're when that's harder to incorporate into what you anticipated. So the, the system has to adapt to its context. And together with that, we've got this, and if you know, this kind of links to the social model in a way, in that we all live in a social context where we believe that certainly here that in this part of the world, that we are individuals and we have to prove that we can do this, this and this. We have to pass exams. We have to um, have friends. We have to have social media, you know, whatever it is. And that we begin to value ourselves based on these external contextual factors. And I think as a family therapist, I'd say, well, these are external things that dictate how we see ourselves, but we have choices within that. We we can choose to see things differently. So through talking, through help, through having helpful conversations, we can retell our stories about the past in different ways that have a slightly different meaning and a different value. And I think that opens up far more hope and far more possibilities for the future than conforming to this this idea of well in the eyes of this these expectations I failed do you see yeah. what I mean so we you know and I I, I think we are all you know and gender expected all of these things and I think we forget that we have the freedom to create our own realities our own wishes within within what happens and we do that all the time as I mean you've both being parents of young children we do that all the time in in terms of the pressures of what children have to have or have to do and actually we we know that we can make choices within that we don't have to conform but it's hard <laughs> it's hard and um, and I think there's nothing more humbling than having a brain injury and and yeah. losing so much of what you once had and obviously that knock-on effect of the family as well in your work, in your kind of sessions and therapy, how a talking therapy, do you have any kind of systems that you put in place to help the families? Yeah, I mean, I, I obviously I when I meet someone who's got communication disorder, I didn't know them before. I didn't know them when they were able to easily talk. You know, I explain this and I so I tried to find out as much of the family from the family. But I I think at the moment when that this happens, and you would be able to um, refute this or otherwise, is the focus is on what the impairments are, what, what what this person can't do. And so I would take a slightly different approach. What, you know, what does this person love doing? What, what makes them feel like, you know, they've got away from work, for example. What were they like when they go on holiday? What do they want to do? What did they say that they wish they had more time for? when they were busy working all the time and and trying to explore these these other things these these subjugated stories about who we are that are not part of the global narrative that we're forced into um and i'd agree that aphasia creates a context where our whole sense of self is challenged the model of who we are and puts a risk also all our relationships in many ways because communication itself, I mean, family therapy talks a lot about communication, but not in the actual inability to speak way, <laughs> you know, and that's that makes it even more 
valuable to me because I think I have to find ways together with the family of helping the the person with the communication problem tell their story how of as how they experienced it using limited words or using drawing or using pictures or using art or anything like that I have I do use a non-verbal mood assessment called the vases which I don't know if you know what that is it's the visual analog of self-esteem scale which doesn't really sound like anything much but it's quite useful for um, seeing how people are feeling about things if they can't use the words to to show them I I had a question because I was really interested in what you were saying about transition points Mm -hmm. in the family and we've just entered one Uh, we're now empty nesters officially um our, our youngest son and you are as well yes um and it's it's monumental isn't it it's a really huge change and and I think that for us as a family we've we've learned to um you know create a a, a successful system with the four of us and our wider family and friends and it does feel that it's changed very much now particularly for Hector and I without the children and I think I'm struggling to know how much of that is a you know that's what everyone goes through with empty nest and how how much of that is actually um amplified maybe because of Hector's brain injury and the aphasia which as you say is shared between Mm -hmm. us but still I I think I can't I'm trying to work that out still it's early days but I do recognise that we're going to have to reframe the way that we have communicated, um, done things practically, um, and that that's not all negative, but it's going to take work. So, yeah, that's a question to you, really. And that that really, you're speaking to someone who's also just become an empty nester and struggling with it. And, you know, and I think to answer your question, I, my, my partner, doesn't have a brain injury however we are still massively having to negotiate through we've got two spare bedrooms upstairs that are absolute tip an absolute mess and I I said to my husband the other day I can't bear to go in there I just want to cry if I go (laughs) and yet there are so many other parents I talk to who just said oh it's great you can just do the things you want to do you know and and I think it's like people people with aphasia for example there are as many different reactions and responses and views about it as there are people and I think that may be the same in your in your case however when you were telling me that, I was curious about what Hector's experience of the children leaving is and how that differs from yours Yes, I think my my lens on it is different from Hector's. And I think his approach has been generally much more positive. You know, when when I've been saying, oh, I'm really going to miss them. I think he's very much felt, oh, you know, it's their time. They're, we, they're doing what they should be doing, which is absolutely mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there's a certain celebration for him in that, that they both reached the point that they're confident and enough to have have left home and have those opportunities so I think that's very important to him yes yeah um which is fantastic but I I think one thing that I actually feel if I'm very honest is that 
you know, the children aren't there to help with conversation. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I'm sure that, again, that's the same for other people like yourself in, mm-hmm. in your relationship and reframing it. But I think certainly with with the added aphasia into that, I think yes. I then sometimes think, well, the pressure comes back to me in a way, or maybe I feel it more artificially that mm-hmm. I'm thinking, well, Hector's not having enough opportunity for conversation or as much opportunity. Is that because, because the you feel here. that? Is that because you feel that or he feels that? I think that's me feeling that because I'm worrying that I'm not generating enough opportunity to make up for them not being here. Yeah, I can, I could, I can understand that. I wonder, you know, what Hector's perspective. I, I guess, I guess, and I, I think often, you know, some parents will say, you know, I'm just very glad that they've gone and they've they're independent enough and that we've done a good enough job for them to go. I'd be interested to know what the other things, you know, I'm wondering if Hector's view, for example, and I'm completely speculating and I don't want to just do this in a general way. I'm not pretending to know your situation in the slightest, but, you know, another part of that might be, well, because I've, I've had the, these health problems and we've, you know, I've not been able to work, for example, for these years. And yet our children have developed and grown and, and gone home. We've done a really good job. You know, I'm, I'm really, really appreciative that I've, you know that that hasn't been hampered in that in that way does it mean that there are more affordances for him because your conversations aren't so much focused on the children um so that you know he's more to, maybe he doesn't want to talk more to you i mean my husband just seems to ignore me anyway now <laughs> um, probably cuz i don't laugh at his jokes and things like they do but uh, but all those things i i think you're absolutely right that um, and the, the, I know we'll perhaps come on to talk about the aphasia cafe that I run, but many of the couples who come to that certainly have been through so many different life stages of, well, we all have actually over the years of having children, having grandchildren, you know, having um, divorces in the family, having illness, having bereavement. And yet, Despite the aphasia, we still seem to have these conversations about how we navigate these very difficult transitions. And I mm. wondered whether other people who were in a similar situation with, with you would have perspectives on that. Mm. It might resonate with you or might not resonate with you. And I think both is, are, can be equally valid, can't they, if you meet someone whose experience actually isn't like yours at all. Well, I think that the, the key is to keep communicating through those points of transition, isn't it? However one Absolutely. communicates and negotiate and and be open and honest about how we're each feeling. I think I suppose that, you know, that's what therapy I see as, as having useful conversations. And, and these useful conversations often have a life outside the session. Yes. Well, you carry on, th- you know, when I when I've seen someone for a session and had a conversation with them, that will often play out sort of in the night or whatever, and I'll have different questions, you know, and it carries on, doesn't it? It's not just in that in mm. that moment. Um, and and whatever conversation we I have with somebody else, what resonates for them and what they think is absolutely irrelevant is up to them, it's not up to me. Susie, do you see the family as a whole? So would you see the children as well? Because I'm quite curious about the impact that 
it can have on children. Obviously, I've got really young children and perhaps, you know, in some ways I can see there's been so many positives. But what would you say is kind of the common kind of effects of children who have a parent who's had a brain injury? My approach would be, I suppose, if I if I saw a family, they tend to be teenage or older children, would be to talk about brain injury education, about what, you know, what, and actually make it quite f- like a game, really, you know, drawing a brain, what, what different parts of your brain can do, um, you know, and who, you know, who you are as a person is is possibly quite different from what the different brain parts of your brain do um and, and do some sort of education around around it first but also um i think it it's quite interesting to to explore a little bit what children's perceptions of their parent are because sometimes i think children just accept things as they are when they're very young and don't ask questions and can be f- far more adaptive than we are and they're more likely to pick up on your reaction to a situation than react themselves sometimes. And so I would be curious to know what children would think is, you know, what what does daddy do that's funny? You know, what does daddy do that's silly? You know, is daddy um, um, is daddy good at something that mummy's not very good at? Or, you know, and, and trying to to explore. So you're you're filling out for the children that you know daddy is is a whole three-dimensional person with lots of attributes and mum has her negatives too (laughs) as my children are always quite happy to point out mine exploring who we are who are what our identities are regardless of any disability yeah just having Um, that taking a step back and looking at the whole person Looking at the whole person mm. and what what do you think mummy and daddy like doing most at home? You know, and it's interesting to find out because you might be quite surprised what children actually point out and notice and what what they appreciate about how you and their dad communicate with one another or even not communicate. Sometimes just being happy in the same room, just sitting next to each other and so forth is, is, gives children a sense of mum and dad are together. And that's, you know, that in itself are things they notice. The other thing is that when I work with families, even if I work with an individual, I'm thinking of the family context all the time. So conceptually, I'm not thinking of an individual and their internal state. I'm thinking about them in the context of the the system, if you like. There are many, many speech and language therapists in hospital, but when they're out in the community, when actually that's the time when brain injury survivors really do need that extra help. There isn't always as as many facilities available for that. There are always fewer, I would say. I would go so far as to say there are always fewer. And I think one of the other things that changed, you know, that it's I found quite inspiring was that I decided one year that I was going to go to the Child Brain Injury Trust Conference and I can't remember her name off the top of my head, but she was talking about her frustration at the, I think the expression she used was castles in the sky or something, you know, the hospitals being the focus of places of where you go when you're ill and where where solutions. And because it's a hospital, 
the expectation is they're going to make it better. That's what hospitals do. That's what doctors do. Um, and as we know, a stroke or a brain hemorrhage or something like that, it's already happened. It's happened. It's not going to be made better in that sense. Um, so it's when that's when the difficulties begin, not end. And I think, you know, the medical profession who are very tied up in the hospitals often don't see people three or four years down the line. Um, I saw a man who was about a, six months out of hospital and I assessed on the NHS and I assessed him for his swallowing problems, which um, he had swallowing problems, but he didn't want to do anything about it. So that, that was fine. Um, and I... To my shame now, I discharged him from speech therapy because I didn't think that he would make any progress. Um, five years later, when I was working privately, his wife contacted me and said, I think she'd forgotten that I was the therapist she'd seen on the NHS and the very same. Um, and I went to see him and my jaw hit the floor because this man who I thought wasn't going to do any, wasn't, wasn't going to make progress, wasn't going to benefit from therapy. Um, he was talking, but more importantly, he was every day, in fact, he's got a Facebook page, every day he was drawing an A3 sized complex drawing of a landscape and a different one every day. And over the time I saw him after that, we were having conversations about architecture, religion, um, you know, art, all sorts of things. I just thought never, never again will I say never. <laughs> Absolutely. They will surprise you because the progress is always there. It, it can always happen. And sometimes it is better when they're outside that institutionalized environment. My husband, and, and it's interesting what you say about, you know, the hospital staff not always seeing the patient further on down the line and you know the prognosis for Paul yes. was not good at all and he did go back probably a year and then maybe a couple of years later and they were just astounded the hospital staff yeah. were just astounded that he was talking he was walking he looked fit and uh, and I think it's really important actually that there is that communication to show and, and not to give up hope on these patients because I felt that some of the hospital staff had actually um and but and he's very determined and he was like well I'm going to show you and I think sometimes you you have to have that bit about you to to go absolutely and that that determination I feel is what often makes the big difference but mm. actually that hope Elizabeth that that lack of hope in him getting better, I would see as more of a lack of faith in themselves to make him better and not even thinking because they don't see beyond that. You know, and I frequently see people that are told with their aphasia, you know, it'll get better over the first year and then it'll slow down. And from two years onwards, it's not going to change. You know, I'm working some with someone who had a traumatic brain injury, so a much more um, gross injury if you like who's been non-verbal for four years and he's now starting to talk and he's starting to use gestures and he's reading and you know and I just thought and it's only because his his care is as a result of a litigation claim because it was a, a car accident that so it had to be paid you know it's being paid for his therapy 
So he's been able to get consistent ongoing therapy and it's reaping dividends. So, you know, I wouldn't, I would never say never, even if I weren't giving him therapy, I would still not say he's not going to improve because again, that person is part of the environment around him or her. And if that is being, that's always shaping us, isn't it? For all of us, we are shaped by what's happening around us and we respond to it. Well, what so do you think the most important factors that people have in their environment, in that family environment? And community environment. I think it's it's not only just the family, is it's the, the context that the family operate in too. And yeah, I'm interested like, in those wider community yeah. connections as well. It's like a series of circles mm. all around and all of those are part of supporting somebody who has any disability really and the person who maybe has to take the response more of the responsibility or or a caring role in some ways which is another story that I could talk about but they need the support of their community to keep on doing that as well and and sharing that and people do that in different ways and one of the things I often come across is I have it now with a woman who has aphasia and her husband is caring and he 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 was very very distressed for a few sessions and I said to him you know he said I don't know how to I don't know how I don't know if I can do therapy with her I don't know and I said look you are her husband first and foremost that's all you need to be and he was very he felt very bad about saying he he didn't want to be her therapist he didn't want to be her carer in that sense he wanted to maintain their couple relationship because that was what was important for him and for her and so that and it was kind of it was I think about validating that because why why is there an assumption that a partner wants to become a carer or not you know it depends on what level of care someone needs um but I don't think we can assume that I think we all have different reasons for wanting to take or preserve roles as they are it is really important and yeah I empathize completely with that I think that's complicated and I think there are labels and you know we've talked in other episodes haven't we Elizabeth about you know identifying or not as a carer oh really Um, right that's yes yeah no I I think (laughs) and it's something that actually in terms of using that word I use more readily than Elizabeth does I also think that even though that label is there, there are different degrees as to how that operates. Of course. Even though there are, I think, undoubtedly caring responsibilities that I'm sure, um, you know, many of us have, even if we don't call ourselves a carer. So I think, but even if we call ourselves a carer, we might not, operate differently from someone who doesn't so I think it's about how we identify individually and together in those roles it's what the mean and that comes back to language and meanings doesn't it you know exploring well what does being a carer mean to you and what does it mean to you and you know is it a word that you 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 want to use and that's that's absolutely fine is it you know if it's not a word that you want to use so someone Perhaps um, someone, a younger woman I work with with a brain injury, we're starting to talk about instead of having a support worker or a care assistant, we're talking about her having a personal assistant, a PA. So because that feels for her a little less pathologizing, 
Mm. <laughs> um, and the language is important, isn't it? it? It holds meaning, different meanings for different people. And that's why we need to explore what words we use and what what resonates with us and what what we want, how we identify. We all do it differently. I, you know, I was reading something about aphasia being particularly hard because it's invisible. But the gentleman I talked to you about whose whole career was based on use of language, basically, um, his greatest relief that it was that nobody would think he was disabled. Mm. And yet the language was for his family was the worst thing he could possibly use. I'm, I, it never ceases to surprise me the perspectives and the meanings people take from things. I'm, I'm really curious to know and then to work with that because it's not up to me to change anyone's way of thinking or because it makes me think differently about things when I hear the way other people think about things, you know. I'm sure you're learning every day, Susie, with, with all of your work. Um, and it sounds very mm -hmm. fulfilling, actually, for you. Um, I'm just wondering, coming on to wrapping up, are there some kind of specific strategies that people who are listening could possibly implement or some questions they could possibly ask for friends or family that or anybody that they may know who has a brain injury or any kind of you know yeah sort of neurological issues trying to focus on what somebody can do and what they they can express and what what has remained their core identity in your eyes you know reinforcing that and acknowledging that um whatever whatever that happens to be you know um is really important rather than talking about what's lost and i suppose the other thing i would say with often with people with aphasia or is that and i'm sure you've talked about this as well sometimes friends fall away you know when when someone has aphasia or because and I always, I've written about this quite a bit in my book, and I've always understood it as people really not knowing how to respond, how to react. And it's it's a way of saving face for them, really. So I always feel that it's incumbent, is actually on the person with aphasia or their, their family to, to instigate and to say to people, yeah, I can't find my words, but I, I know what I want to say. I want to talk to you please bear with me. And once once the person with a disability can make that first step, people are, oh, well, it's fine, it's fine. This woman with a, with a personal assistant oh, yesterday told me, and I've been trying to get her to do this for two years, she, she is worried that people will think she's drunk because of the way she speaks. So when she takes her dog for a walk, she avoids everybody and crosses over and hides behind trees. <laughs> so she doesn't have to talk to them. And yesterday she was with her dog and a man with two little girls came and she wanted to protect the girls from, she didn't want the, do the children to go up to the dog in case she snapped or something. So she just went, oh, 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 and then panicked that she wouldn't be able to speak and just went off with the dog. But then when she walked back again, the man had dropped his daughters at school and she went right up to him and said, I'm so sorry, I couldn't talk because I've had a brain hemorrhage, but I wanted to make sure your girls were okay. And, and I said, and what did he say? Was he horrified? And she said, no, he said, it's fine. It doesn't matter. 
And she said, I see his wife every day and she might, she, I might talk to her next time. But it's taken two years to pluck up the courage to say this to somebody. And, and actually, he doesn't care. They don't care. But they, I said, well, actually, it, it doesn't, whether you've had a brain injury, it doesn't matter. What you've got across is that you're not drunk. And that's what matters to you. So that's, you know, that's the reason for doing it really, isn't it? So people don't think you know, wrong, you know, badly of you or negatively or I'm so pleased for that woman because that's a a small step, actually a big step, that now she's done it, she will far more easily be able to do again. Yeah. yeah. That's great progress. It is great progress um for her, certainly, and hopefully she will she I mean she's gaining confidence all the time, which is good. The social model of disability you were talking about, Julia. Why should it be the person with a disability who's got to make that step? Um, it's wrong, isn't it? It we should be the the context, the surroundings. We should be much more open and curious about other people and accepting of people than we are. Yes, and there may be listeners who aren't familiar with the social model of disability, but okay. basically, it is a model which is different from a medical model because. We talk in the social model about people having impairments, but the disabling factor is the barriers they face in society that that are put in place for people that make it difficult for them. So the easiest example is that uh, a wheelchair user is disabled because there isn't a ramp to get into a building. There are only stairs. So they are not disabled because they use a wheelchair, but because the building hasn't been made accessible. But we're talking about it now in the context of aphasia. And and one of my takeaways from this conversation is the way that you talked about aphasia being in the spaces between people mm. Mm. Uh, rather than only attached to the person who has aphasia. And I mm. think that's hugely powerful mm. because it dissipate some of the impact of it and allows everyone to take responsibility for reducing the barriers that the person with aphasia has completely completely and 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 an analogy for the ramp with aphasia is listening giving time using supported conversation techniques Yes. Um, you know, turning the TV off, you know, actually looking at someone face to all these things are the ramps, which is is incumbent on everyone else to do, actually. And that's yes. what we must do. Um, and I think, Susie, that what we will have to do is at some point in the future, have you back on to talk about <laughs> some of those other strategies that you've just mentioned at the end there. But you've given us so much food for thought You've given us so many useful ways of thinking. So thank you so much for coming and joining us today. Well, thank you. And, you know, I heard about you from the Anchor newsletter. And when I was put in touch with that newsletter, it was just like, finally, I found people who are thinking about families and not just the the individuals. So thank you both so much. And I, I really appreciate 
what you're doing in this podcast. And in fact, I've forwarded it to all the members of our Aphasia Cafe because I think they would be really interested. And if you want to interview them, I'm sure they would talk to you as well. Thank you. Um, Thank you so much, Susie. That means you're both welcome to to visit and um and i and i wish you both really well in the in the in what's what's to come in life and all the uh things and i hope your empty nest feels a bit (laughs) you've got to remember that you've got to remember that when your kids are just exhausted exhausting yes trying the time when you'll think yeah, I'd even put up with the temper tantrum. <laughs> I know. Thank true. you so much. All right. Thank, Thank you, you, Susie. Please. It's been fascinating, fascinating to talk to you. So really, really appreciate you coming on. And yeah, let's stay. It's it's great that we've been connected. Yeah. Yeah, and great. yeah, let's stay. Right. Let's keep it that way. Love Thank you. It. Thank you both. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye, Susie. If you liked this episode and wanted to learn more about aphasia, do scroll back up and listen to some of our earlier episodes. There's number 14 with Professor Leff. That's about strengthening recovery from aphasia and some of the amazing research he has done into the condition. Another related one is with speech and language therapist Bindia Patel, episode eight, and she talks about improving communication after stroke. Do follow us on social media. We are on Instagram as onagood.day and Twitter on a good underscore day. We also have a Facebook page. The links are all in the show notes. And we'll also put more information about Susie and the work she does there as well. Until next time, have a very good day. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.